This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome, guys, to episode 303 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Ryan Chamberlain. Now, Ryan is not only a very successful entrepreneur here in Ocala, but he's also running for Congress here in Florida. So we sat down. I want to preface. We sat down before isolation. This is an old recording now I'm just putting out um, face-to-face here in town to kind of explore his expertise on leadership, on entrepreneurialism, on obviously the reason he's going into politics. And then for me, one of the most important things was also social business. So this is something that really fascinates me. We've got, you know, the the nonprofit organizations, we've got the for-profit organizations. And again, there's this middle ground where some of these businesses are being driven to succeed because of the side effects of what's happening with the organizations that they're supporting. So I think that's a very, very important topic that needs to be highlighted in this interview. So before we get to that conversation, please just take a moment, as I say every week, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on. Subscribe to the show, that way you get notifications when a new episode is out. Leave feedback. I love reading what you write and then leave a rating. The five-star ratings that we get elevate us on the virtual charts and therefore make us more accessible and easier to find for people who are looking for a podcast like this. And then with this free library of content, please help pay it forward by sharing these incredible episodes and getting these men and women's stories to the people that need to hear them on planet Earth. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Ryan Chamberlain. Enjoy.
Okay, so I'm sitting here again at home, but this time my guest is Ryan. So uh, firstly, Ryan, welcome to Casa de Gearing. All right, thank you for having me. Thank you. I want to start by saying thank you very much to Chief Frank Viscuso for connecting us. Yep. So let's start with that as a little backstory. How did you meet Frank? Well, I met Frank probably, it had to have been 17, 18 years ago, um, early 2000s. We were on a business project. Uh, actually, I met someone in Florida that led me to someone uh, in New Jersey that led me to Frank Viscuso. And we connected. We, we probably met at a leadership retreat or function somewhere, trying to remember exactly where, but we hit it off. We're about the same age. He might be a few years older than me. Uh, certainly, I was attracted to his service. Um, lived in New Jersey and you know, we, I lived in Florida. There's a little bit uh, a difference in personalities from people from New Jersey and people from Georgia, Florida, where I'm from. But we, we just connected. We hit it off. We had the same passion for personal development. And uh, we've been friends ever since. We ended up co-writing a book together a few years back called The Mentor. But I've just had tremendous respect for Frank, for what his life's been about. And then, of course, uh, he's gone down the path of service uh, not only in the fire department, uh, but now he's servicing uh, people in their lives and helping them grow. So that's our background with Frank. Brilliant. We'll get to the mentor. I want to cover mentorships. I think that's an area sure. that a lot of us don't do as well as we should in 2020, um, especially in the fire service. So, uh, but let's start at the very beginning. So where were you born? I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up in a little town, I'd say the first 10 years or so. Uh, little town called Stockbridge, Georgia, and uh, my mom and dad, uh, my dad is an attorney, was an attorney then. He also, as a young boy, uh, ran uh, and won two terms in the Georgia State House uh, Legislature. So I grew up around that environment um, that was uh, late 70s, early 80s, when that was taking place. And my dad uh, was involved in, in politics, my dad and mom. My mom certainly supported everything that was going on there. And that was the environment. Uh, maybe I caught a little bit of a, a desire back then at a young age to want to understand and participate in eventually. I didn't know when that would happen. Uh, but my dad ended up moving away from uh, politics. And we moved to Florida. Both my grandparents are from Central Florida. Uh, Marion County, where I reside right now, and Alachua County, uh, which just so happens to be two of the counties that I would represent uh, here in the future uh, in in politics, if if uh, that's allowed to happen. So I've I've really been around this area. We we visited our grandparents uh, yearly ever since I was born, uh, Florida. But but ties to Georgia. Um, Florida, my whole life, a brief stint in Tennessee for about a year. But other than that, it's been Georgia, Florida. And, um, you know, we we traveled a lot, but this is where we reside. I now have been married uh, 25, almost 26 years. I have four sons. Uh, my oldest is right at 23 years old. And then we have a 19, 18, and a 15-year-old boy. We Everybody keeps asking us if we're going to try for a girl. We did keep trying for a girl. That's how we ended <laughs> that's, up with four boys. That's the worst question anyone can ask because I've, I've got lots of friends <laughs> who got multiple of one sex because they were trying for the other one. <laughs> yeah. And so that's kind of a snapshot. I know you're going to dial in on some questions, but that, that's where I'm from. 
and we we have uh, uh, you know from a, a root standpoint we've we've been at the same uh, church for thirty plus years. Um, we've kind of had a real stable stable environment. Have not moved around a lot, but have traveled a lot. But its home base has been Central Florida for lots of years. Yeah, well, I, I say the same thing. Like I love traveling, being all over the world. But people say, oh, you know, don't you want to move to? A big city. It's like no, you don't understand. Ocala is such a great place <laughs> to have home base, and then just just go see the world and come back. And you know, we, we live in a place where most people would save to come on vacation. So we're pretty lucky. Um, we're talking over your dad. So interesting kind of tangent. Um, what has been his observation of politics in general over the last three decades? Well, when I was a young boy, uh, he he ran on the uh, Democratic ticket uh, and won, and he is a Republican today. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that, um, again, my dad would be a great one to to ask that question to. But you know, from a conservative uh, standpoint, we and from in, from our perspective again from a christian conservative pers- perspective uh, the values that that are being challenged today uh, weren't being challenged the same way 30 years ago in a lot of ways and and i know on this podcast we're we're just we're going to be talking about a lot of different things here so um, but you know from a value standpoint i think he would say you know he wants to be in alignment with a party with people that are at least close, closer to be in alignment with what he would consider his value systems are. So, you know, from that standpoint, um, it's really not an alignment of party. It's alignment of values. So, you know, who is it you line up with? What are the things you want to see? And he feels like uh, it's certainly the world's tougher today, you know, with, with, the, with social media and the way things are, are put out there. Um, we, we have a, a whole nother set of challenges in today's politics than what happened uh, was even available for people to be challenged with 15, 20, 30 years ago. So in a nutshell, I think that he would he would really say that it, the world is is completely different from a political standpoint. But at the same time, the root of, of getting things done and, and working with people and trying to find common ground, those are all still uh, – of values that that have to be sought after to get anything done right yeah because i mean for me and we talked about this before we start recording i'm neither left or right you know i think it's like you said it's a human thing like we're pieces of everything and to, to put yourself in a rigid box i think is the you know the the, the precursor to disaster you know to to sure. label me as to gate me the gate me as they say um but seeing and i've t- some mentions on this a few times seeing the dis- the two individuals that we were left to choose from made me realize that the system as a whole has failed us in bringing great leaders up to the podium where we can now choose from people who would be proud of. And even if your um, your candidate didn't win, you'd be like, well, you know, it's not aligning exactly with what I want, but this one's also still a good one. And sadly, I mean, this is my personal opinion, but I don't think that either of the two that we were left with this time were even close to that. And I can name 20 people that become this podcast that I would rather have been <laughs> in that position. So um, rather than picking on the actual candidates, to me as an American, as, as an immigrant, um, 
it seems like maybe our system is preventing some very, very good men and women rising to, to that it's a, point. It's a tough sport. I mean, it, it is a tough sport. You're going to – they're going to tear whoever is running apart. And I think uh, there's just a lot of really good people that don't want to compete in that kind of environment. So to your point, the system probably does keep some really, really good people from – from uh, giving this country what they could give it just because of the dynamics and the bloodiness, so to speak, of uh, the competition. And, you know, I don't know that there is a, a quick fix about it because uh, the machine's going down down the road. Uh, however, uh, we can encourage more and more people to get involved. We can encourage more and more people to, to uh, vote. Uh, you know, I think the majority of Americans uh, – um, you know, I know that I've been in positions in certain certain cycles where I really didn't have the in-depth understanding of who I was or wasn't going to be voting for. Uh, so, you know, to your to your point, it's um, I agree with what you're saying. I, I don't know that, you know, it's hard, hard to say who who would or wouldn't be the best. What we're all looking for is results. And but in a very public eye, sometimes. You take it a step further, you're looking for, you know, people that you can identify with, people that you can be proud of, people that represent. Uh, and that all those combinations are, are it seems like to find the perfect candidates, it's going to it's getting harder and harder and harder. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, being from another country, like, you know, I'm an immigrant. I came in the quote unquote right way, have huge, you know, um, uh, empathy for people that are fleeing a horrendous environment, whether it's Syria or, you know, Haiti or somewhere where they literally potentially are going to be murdered, you know, so there's, it's not black and white even with immigration. But of course, then there's also that open gate thing where you can't just come flooding in. I had to jump through all the hoops. Um, but then there's also the thing where I have all these members of the military on who've lost all their, their people. And I look at some of the, the conflicts that we've found ourselves in, you know, some, were they preventable? Were they, you know, justifiable? Um, and I know you have a quote on your website, uh, walk softly, but carry a big stick by Roosevelt. I agree hundred percent. Like you have to be a threat. You have to be deterrent, but you can't be punching every nation in the nose, trying to start a fight, especially if you're not the one going to be actually sure. deploying yourself. I mean, it's, it's really about peace and protection. I mean, we, we seek after peace. We want peace. We do everything we can, or we should be doing everything we can. Uh, peace first. But the way I view America, and, I, and I'm proud to be uh, from, from America, is maybe the same way uh, a lot of people would, would view protecting their own family in their home. Um, you know, we're not going to go out and pick fights. But if someone, if we feel like our children are threatened, we're going to do everything we possibly can do to make sure that our children are protected. And, and I believe that uh, that's the way we, we have to feel in the United States uh, of America. And that is, um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to pick on any the decisions from the past. You know, there certainly were some right ones. There certainly were some wrong ones. But on a go-forward basis, we absolutely have to protect our home because it's our families that are at risk. And that doesn't mean we have to be uh, uh, overly 
forceful to initiate anything, but we absolutely have to protect. And there will be certain situations where, um, you know, when attacked or when threatened to attack, there will be things that have to be initiated. That's, uh, those are tricky conversations, tricky decisions, Mm -hmm. but. Yeah. Again, I think it's, it's exactly it. There's no black and white. There's that middle ground. You have to be strong enough to be a threat, but a threat can be a huge deterrent as well. That's, that's all you, you need and the diplomacy thrown in. Um, it's funny as well. Another kind of perspective I got just, I did a little post on social media yesterday about the coronavirus. You know, everyone's focusing on wiping stuff down and wearing all their suits and there's no conversation about the one true protection against most of these things which is the human immune system so there's no discussion on the obesity epidemic or pesticides in food or factory farming meat all these things are creating the huge amount of ill health that we're seeing in the u.s and even with the military like you know we we're a nation quick to say well you know the terrorists come over here i'm going to grab my guns and do whatever but are you you know what I mean? If we're if you're sick and you're on blood pressure pills and you're overweight and you're probably going to drop dead before you get there. So I think that the one side of national security that we also are really missing the boat on, this includes a pool of men and women that the military can then use, is our nation's health. You know, and I think we've allowed um, large industries to take advantage of our food, you know, our our medical system, even our schools and our prison systems as well to really create a lot of ill health, which I think makes us more vulnerable as a country from attack and you know even disease. Absolutely. <clears throat> you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about how much, you know, because we're talking a little politics and we're talking a little bit of humanity here. You know, what what really should, uh, you know, how, how should we go and address this, this epidemic? Because it, it, it's affecting our health care costs, uh, which is draining to the American people. It's uh, it's rising, constantly rising from ill health. But to your point, the epidemic that's taking place with with people's health in this country, in particularly, is at a, at a record high. Heart problems record high. Diabetes at a record high. Uh, we could go right down the list, and you know, one of the wealthiest countries here in the world is also one of the most unhealthiest countries. In the world and the unhappiest as well which is bizarre it, it is bizarre and you know it's tied to uh, money it's it's there there's a money machine that is working against the average person in this country when it comes to uh, food the pesticides the things that are going into it and I know we're not here to talk about all that but, but I we believe can, but we can I yeah but we can topic. we yeah. can and I guess we are right we're not in a ru- <laughs> we're not in a rush to do anything nope. we're, uh, we're, we're just talking about life and and things and issues that that we all deal with. I think that uh, when I think of government, I think of uh, some of the things that are causing the problems that we're currently having, lack of transparency, um, lack of accountability. And it's going to, you know, I have a saying right now that I'm, I'm using quite often in conversations because people, you know, we're talking about the reasons why people would even want to run for office. Well, we... You, you can't uncorrupt corruptness generally. You have to replace and and bring in a new a renew a renewed sense of uh, optimism. But but people you have to bring in people that really want to get things done for the right reasons and the right values and have the right value systems. And when that's done, these things that we're talking about 
they can start to get peeled away a little bit so that um, it is a little bit more transparent. And what is starting to happen is there is a, more of an awareness uh, that some of what we're talking about is going on. I, I think a few years back before, I, I'm thinking of uh, videos that I've even seen with my family here in the last five or 10 years, whether it be Forks Over Knives or Food Inc., you know, these Netflix documentaries that just kind of make your mind go wild there for a little bit when you finally understand that, okay, there's a, there's a system, there's a machine out here that's, that is not working in our best interest. It's working in someone else's best interest, and there's millions of people paying the price. So I know we kind of jumped off on that, but you, you got me a little, I've, we, I've been involved in talking about this stuff, thinking about this stuff. Uh, my wife actually, from watching some of those documentaries, uh, has uh, gone vegan in the last five years, first 40 years, she was alive. Uh, first 20 years of our marriage, she wasn't. And then she decided to do it after doing getting some research. And our, our entire family's uh, health has been affected by her making that decision to go vegan. Uh, I can't say that I'm full vegan. I'm living more of a vegetarian lifestyle right now with an occasional uh, um, something that, that wouldn't be considered vegetarian. But for the most part, uh, the consciousness of what we're what we're doing to ourselves without someone else controlling that decision, uh, placing that upon us, is something that every American, everybody listening to this, should want to be passionate about. Well, then I'd love to just explore that for a moment. So, did she have any um, any health issues that improved after she changed her diet or weight or energy? What what was what were the things that she noticed turning? Because obviously, she stayed with it. So she she's always looked gorgeous and in shape to me i mean she and she is today i think that overall feelings of uh energy levels overall feelings of you know we we have less uh uh, the last several years we've just had less colds less sickness you know the immune system has gotten stronger i think it was more of a if i make this decision today at late 30s early 40s this could really extend the quality of my, not only my life by 10 to 20 years, but the quality of my life the next 40, 50, or even 60 years. Mm-hmm. And I think at, at our age, it wasn't, uh, we weren't in a situation where, uh, and I know she wasn't in a situation where she was having to go to the doctors a lot or the hospitals a lot, or, or there definitely was not an obesity issue going on. But it, it became, you know, hey, my body is my body, and I need to start really controlling how I'm, how I'm treating it. And the things that I've been told my whole life weren't true. And I know she is one that once she finds out somebody hasn't been telling her the truth, which is what some of those documentaries help you uncover, mm-hmm. then it's like now I'm totally against everything that has anything to do with something that's not being told to me to be the truth. So it's uh, it's really she's totally uh, helped drive the passion our family matter of fact she she has launched her own uh uh amazon line of vegan products vegan deodorant vegan shaving cream uh she's got lip balm and she's not only what we eat but also what we put onto our bodies and in our bodies and what we're using uh in the form of you know all the things that we use as humans are affecting us as well Mm -hmm. because it's the same it's not just what we eat. It's it's other things that we use on a regular basis that causes issues as well. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and that's the 
That's the thing I've witnessed. So I had James Wilkes on the show who was behind the Game Changers movie. Um, I had uh, Dr. Joel Salatin who was in Food Inc. and Forks Over Knives, but he's a farmer. So he farms meat, but he farms it holistically, rotating the crops and, you know, the cows go through and then the chickens and then the pigs, the way it would have been roaming across, you know, the, the, the wild. Um, and that's... The, the common denominator is is getting getting clean food, you know, and obviously with the meat, realizing that we as a culture, English and American, consume far more meat than we ever would have naturally 100 plus years ago. We wouldn't have just woken up and there'd be, you know, ample amounts of meat just sitting in a fridge. Um, but again, just like with politics, you see this, the two extremes, like ready to tear each other apart. And then the middle ground is just consume less meat, consume no meat if you choose to, but Take a step back and, like you said, look at where your foods come from. If the dude, the farmer, has to wear a level B hazmat suit to spray the vegetables, where do you think that crap is going? It's, in, it's going into your children's body. If these cows are kept alive with antibiotics because they're basically dying because they're in, stuck in a factory farm, how do you think that meat's going to be to you? So it's so... Because I'm the same. I look back and look at the way we were taught to eat, the way we were taught to exercise. So many things that were just wrong of our generation. Um, and it it does make you angry. But then the answer is simple, which is voting with your dollar. When you go to the store and you find a truly healthy version of what you're going to buy and it's, you know, 50 cents more, ask yourself, if I, am I do I want to support the farmer that's basically doing animal cruelty in his factory farm or do I want to support the local farmer who's got the free range, whatever. And ultimately, that's going to flip around where the free range will be cheaper and the crappy stuff will be more expensive and no one will buy it anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's not black and white. There's all these ranges and wherever you feel you fall that works for you and your lifestyle but makes sense healthy-wise, it doesn't have to be complete vegan or carnivore or whatever it is, but is it clean? I think that's the thing people got to understand. They'll find themselves somewhere in a kind of vegan, vegetarian, omnivore realm but the quality of the food is is the thing and the fact that we've allowed these companies to do this to our food that grows on our earth that you know sure. we were born into is uh just i mean infuriating it is you know and on this note here uh that we're talking about you know one of the the big awarenesses that we've come to as a family is the the amount of marketing angles that go into the food that we eat you just because something says it's fat free does not mean it's good for you mm -hmm. it's full of sugar probably you know and we can go you get the idea of that there, there's many things that the label has been designed in a certain way to to make people think oh well this is a healthier alternative <laughs> it's it may be a worse alternative mm -hmm. you know and so we really have to become a little bit knowledgeable uh you know we don't have to become medical you know geniuses here but we've got to we got to know some basics and it's not that difficult to learn the basics but taking the time to do it is something that uh hopefully more and more people are going to do yeah yeah and i think just kind of circling around to how we got into this when people understand that you know obviously there's longevity and that, but there's also the protection side yeah. like you can't protect your family solely by filling two gun safes full of weapons if you're not eating well and you're overweight and you're not exercising you're not going to be able to protect them when it when it matters. And if you think about even you know the larger scale national security, so you know the the wellness there's there's no downside. All the different levels, all the different tiers from your own personal well being all the way through the protection of your country, 
relies on you taking care of yourself, you know, watching what you eat, exercise, and even, you know, go the next step and think about training, like martial arts or actually training with a weapon so that, God forbid, you see something happen in your community. You're actually a member that can step up and intercept and then become part of a a much more dissuasive culture. Whereas if you, I mean, I know disrespect, but if everyone's wheeling around electric wheelchairs with oxygen tanks on the back, it's not really dissuading crime right now. No, that's <laughs> right, know? that's right. So, all right, well then, let's circle back to, to early life. You obviously stay in shape even now. So when you were back in school, what kind of sports were you into? Well, as a young boy, um, I played uh, Little League Baseball, played basketball, played uh, some what they call Little little League or Mighty Might football. Up, up before I was 10, I was involved in, in, in a lot of sports, maybe up to about 12. And so never super great at any of them. I, was, I, was always, I got to where I was a starter, but I was never the star of the team. I was just a, a, a good uh, – yeah, I liked to play it. We, we did a little bit of martial arts when we were little, um, and I was fairly thin – Growing up, I, most uh, people around here would call it skinny. Matter of fact, uh, the day I was married, I think I was about 125 pounds, just a just a bean pole. And my wife and I, uh, we were maybe early 20s, and I did not start gaining weight. They call it sympathy weight, but as my wife, when she was pregnant with our our firstborn, uh, certainly she she gained the weight that you would gain becoming pregnant, and I started gaining with her. And I gained about thirty or forty pounds in about a year, and I was she got rid of it all. I kept it on, so that was the beginning of me starting to look a little bit more normal, I would say. But but the the sports side of of life has always been, um, I've always been active. Always had you know active. Some sometimes I'm probably in better shape today than I than I was uh, even in my twenties and thirties, just because I'm a little bit more. Uh, regimented with with what I do it took me a lot of years to to bake that into my daily weekly habits mm-hmm. and but you know we're we want to be healthy we want to be mobile we want to be able racquetball is probably the, my my most recent sport that I have played in some leagues and done some things and uh, with that um, although it's been been a, a few months since I've I've uh, been in a league but uh, yeah, that's a little bit about sports. Okay, you played racquetball at the YMCA? YMCA at Ocala. Yeah, I played in their league. That was a while ago now. I think I was still married to my, my previous wife probably nine, ten years ago. I got you. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I, game. I, I was uh, the last five years, about th- three of those years, um, maybe about uh, eight or ten of the different uh, league sessions uh, I, I participated in and enjoyed it very much. Yeah. My teenage boys now have play uh, with their school, so we – we try to visit their games. Um, they're in the basketball and football, and uh, you know, sporting is has been a part of our life for ever since I was born, basically. Brilliant. All right. Well, then let's take the the, the kind of career path then. So, at okay. high school, what were you hoping to do when you graduated? When I graduated high school, I was hoping to be a, a grocery store manager. At that point, uh, I'd, I'd started working at a grocery store at sixteen, seventeen. And um, the the day I graduated high school, I was on a track to to get into a management program, and and I did become a, a night manager at 18 years old at a, a fairly large grocery chain. And but 
it uh, just wasn't moving fast enough for me. And I got bored with it. I was also in uh, local college, at community college. And a few years uh, later, after high school, w- my wife and I, who, who I'd met at 15 years old, we had known each other for years, uh, we got married at 20 and 19. And fairly young uh, by most standards. We Matter of fact, now that we have some 19 and 20-something-year-old kids, we're thinking, wow, that was pretty young. Pretty young. <laughs> pretty young. Uh, and... That uh, that led me to getting a job. I, I got a job in the financial industry, really uh, started out in collections, but I started to understand a little bit of, I worked for a small finance company that led me to uh, doing some marketing for a finance company where I would uh, market loans to different dealerships right here in Marion County and Alachua County. Uh, different car dealerships. I, I was uh, a marketing consultant for a, a finance company. And then I ended up starting uh, my own finance company at about 22 years old. So I've, I've, from 18 to 22, I had various jobs trying to figure out what I might be interested in and, and quickly realized that, you know, I, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to control my destiny from that standpoint. I'm not saying that's for everybody, but for me, that was uh, what I was looking to do. And and uh, so at 22, started a company called Ryan Marketing Group. And we marketed uh, financial products to businesses, consumers, dealerships, started doing uh, even some uh, mortgage loans and just a little bit here and there growing a small business. Uh, my wife helped me with that. She was in banking at the time and we were you know, a few years into that, it was not going extremely successful at all. Matter of fact, we were struggling financially because everything that we were earning, we were we were needing to reinvest back in the business just to keep it it going. So here I am uh, uh, up to about 24, 25 years old. And I had never really, even though we were self-motivated, self-starters, hard workers, we never really uh, succeeded financially at all. Um, we managed to pay our bills most months, not all, all the time. We know what it's like to be behind on everything. We, we know what it's like to never really had anything uh, necessarily repoed or um, foreclosed on, but it, it got close a couple times. Mm-hmm. And we, we had a couple of credit cards that um, you know, were maxed out for a year or two, and you know, you're paying – you know, the minimum monthly payment just to keep your card to where you can't use it. And and so we we str- we know what that feels like. It's not a good feeling at all. Um, and somewhere around 1999, uh, my, my oldest was two years old. And, you know, I finally, you know, it, those first two years were a blur to me because we were working so hard trying to dig ourselves out of financial trouble. And we... Um, this is 21 years ago, I'm guessing, we decided to take on a part-time project to help bring my wife home from work. She needed to make about $1,000 a month. And that project led us to meet some people that um, we, I kept the mortgage company going for about a year after that. But, but we began to think about things differently. And I'm, I'm going to say this, we allowed ourselves to be mentored by some people that caused us to think bigger, think differently, and take action on life a little bit differently than we were taking action on. 
and and some things started working for us. Um, we started building, um, started doing some marketing, started doing, uh, you know, we had some success with that. And for the first time in our lives, we we had some extra money at the end of the month, and that turned into a solid income for a mid twenty year old couple that that later turned into a very large income. And I don't want to throw around dollar figures on here, but by most standards, we 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 did abnormally well at a very young age uh, financially. And that started opening up additional doors for us to to do some consulting. You know, whenever you succeed in a big way in anything, in our case, in about a three or four year period, we went from, uh, you know, not being able to hardly pay our bills to to making, you know, more money than the average person would ever dream of making on, on a monthly and an annual basis. So in our line of business, people would would start asking, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Well, we, we basically started teaching and coaching and and in addition to what we were doing. And our business just continued to grow. And for um, about a decade, uh, we experienced an incredible lifestyle. My wife decided to homeschool our children after our oldest went through first grade. She said, you know, I want to homeschool. And I think we had a couple of couple of them in diapers or or just crawling around at that time. But she ended up home. She has homeschooled all four of our children. Our third one just turned 18. He graduates in a few months. Uh, We partner with a local Christian school for the sporting program, and he's actually going to be walking the aisle in his senior year. But basically, his up through 11th grade, it was homeschool. And if anybody thinks homeschool can't be tough, I'll tell you, my wife's homeschool, they did the work. She she had to report the work to the state. She was locked in, very diligent, very regimented, very organized. And uh, I hope she I hope she listens to this podcast. Yeah, yeah it's the second we'll compliment sure. you're giving her now. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true, and everybody knows it. That's around her. And our, we have we have one more who's in in tenth grade now, just a couple more years of school. But she she homeschooled our children, and um, but that allowed us to travel the world. So at a fairly young age. Uh, not only were we doing, you know, having a blast doing business, helping people all over the country, but allowed us to take our kids all over the place as well. And that was just a, uh, we were looking through some pictures today at lunch of a trip we took to Egypt with the boys and Israel. And and I can throw out a, a bunch more countries, just places they've been. And that that uh, was afforded because of our entrepreneurial lifestyle and some of the things that we later, somewhere around 2010, so 10 years ago, this summer, uh, I sat down uh, in my living room and began to write my first book. I had met someone by the name of Tony Jerry uh, at, at, in Dallas, Texas, and I met him at Success Magazine. There's uh, an organization out there, if you haven't heard of that magazine, it's a pretty popular magazine, but Success Magazine had contracted with one of the companies that I was working with at the time, and I flew out there to help work on a project. So I got to know everybody out at Success Magazine. We are working on some projects, and I, I met one of my mentors named Tony Jerry out there. He, he had, at that time, authored 30 or 40 books, and you know he didn't know me from Adam, uh, but he, we, we connected. I, at that point, I was in my um, maybe mid to early 30s, this might have been 12 years ago, and I said uh, to Tony, I said, Tony, 
um, what does it take to hire you to be a coach or a consultant? At that time, he was coaching the top Fortune 400, 100, 500 CEOs, big groups, very wealthy companies. He said, well, here's my daily rate if you want to come into my studio for a day. or And it was more money than I'd ever uh, thought of paying anybody for any kind of advice. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't used to hearing that kind of figure. So I was like, man, I'd like to have this guy you know, coach me. And so I came up with an idea and I called Tony up one day and I said, Tony, what if uh, for your daily rate, what if I brought a group of people to your studio and you could just coach us all at the same time? And he said, okay, well, this is what the rate would be. So I went back and I put together these groups where everybody could pay a little bit and it would add up to a big sum. Mm -hmm. And we would fly out to Dallas with some high performance people and sit down with Tony Jerry. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, no one really had done that. And normally he would pay a commission for anybody that would bring consultants to the table. And he called me up and said, okay, you know, this is what I would normally pay for that. I said, Tony, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to keep bringing groups out there. Instead of you paying me anything, why don't you just give me coaching? And it, it, it I think shocked him a little bit, but he got, he, he liked that plan. He, he, and that's how I was able to get what I would consider my next level coaching of, uh, and I'm not saying coaching fixes everything for everybody, but getting yourself around people that challenge your thinking, cause you to grow at a different, cause you to just process things from multiple angles and even think bigger than what you currently think. However you find that in your life, as long as you're, you know, hopefully linking up with people of your, that are in alignment with your values it's going to help you. It's going to help you uh, want to perform at a higher level. You're going to want to be better once you believe you can be better. And so Tony helped me do that. He encouraged me to write a book. 2010, I wrote a book called Now You Know, uh, Why Some Succeed and Others Fail Using the Same System. Matter of fact, Frank Viscuso, he's the only guy I knew at that time besides Tony that I really knew that had written books. So I had him help me review it and work on it. But but the content came from a, a speech that I had given that had sold a lot of copies uh, in marketing and consulting and sales. And I developed a book around that. So that book uh, opened doors for me as well. And we've now authored several more books. And I'm, I'm going to pause and kick it back to you because I know I've kind of no, no, that was path, but I want to make sure you're getting what you want here. No, no, it's good. It's good. So what I want to pull from that is a key turning point or a couple of times was the role of the mentor. So taking us to where, you know, you, you met Frank or you work with Frank, should I say, that's what I hear, especially I love uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast. So he has a lot of entrepreneur, a lot of business, you know, moguls. Um, and that always seems to be a key thing. Now in the fire service, in a good station, someone will take a new person under their wing. This is how we do this. This is how we do that. If they don't get it over and over again, obviously they're not cutting it. There, there may be, you know, <laughs> a lack of interest from that mentor figure. But conversely, we're seeing a lot of this um, arrogance where you're the new guy, you come in and like, what, what do you mean you don't need to do that? What do you, freaking millennial, freaking smoke, you know, whatever it is versus understanding, yeah, this kid came, he, all he knew was IT his whole life and he hasn't seen how to break apart a chainsaw or, you know, what the difference is between a two stroke and a four stroke or whatever it is. So we have to teach them. But then when you have problems with your MDT, your computer, your, you know, whatever it is, 
that's the kid that's going to mentor you then, you know? So they're a different generation, but um, I'd love to hear your kind of expand on, on the kind of content within what you and Frank wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And Frank, I know you've had him on, on here. He, he's just, uh, um, I mean, I'm going to say this about him. A lot of people know Frank because he's given back to, you know, the people that he's, he served all these years and, you know, first responders and, uh, he has a brand, a step up and lead brand that really uh, not only covers tactical, but the mental aspects of what what you guys really have to, to deal with day in and day out. And there's some tough, tough things that are going on there. So most of Frank's material is along the lines of, you know, his experience of leading um, fire departments and, and all of those types of individuals. This particular book called The Mentor has nothing to do with that. It has to, but it does. It, it doesn't, but it's not a story about a fire uh, first responder. It's a story about an entrepreneur. And it's an entrepreneurial's journey. And so what we did was we, we really went through and chapter by chapter, we made quite a few, there's quite a few really small chapters in this book. But one thing, Frank, you may not know about Frank, he's also written uh, screenplays for, you know, different things. And we designed this book to, to really be, be a movie, to be able to shot, be shot as a movie. So we thought about it as in, you know, in terms of how do we take the story of an entrepreneur and the struggles that, it, in, in our case, I, I modeled it after things that I had dealt with, but also things that I had experienced in coaching and working with a lot of other people. You know, the story, you know, from a, from being, someone in their youth and the challenges they have to go through there to someone, you know, finally having a moderate success and hitting roadblocks and what are the challenges that they have there. And we took people through this kind of chronological uh, storyline um, that in a, in a uh, fictional but non-fictional way. So it really is a story about a, a young man that meets certain people along the way that invest time into him and his family and his surroundings. But the mentorship, the the relationships, you know, success being more tied to relationships than it is uh, even the words that you say at any given moment in time. And, you know, people that are stuck in life, oftentimes there's a relationship that they just haven't made with the right people. And then becoming the person that other people want to have a relationship with. See, there's two sides of this. We can want to have a relationship with these, with really cool people, but we also have to become the person that they would want to have a relationship with. And that has to do with habits and disciplines and focus. And this whole story is built around someone starting out as the mentee and growing, having success, and then the role changing into the mentor. And when they become the mentor, their success is even elevated that much more. And so, and it's done in story form. I, you know, I certainly, uh, you would like it. It's on, Am you can get it on Amazon if you want to get it. It's called The Mentor by Frank Viscuso and Ryan Chamberlain. And it's an entrepreneurial story. So we wrote that together because we had gone through some things together. He understood the world that I'd come from. He had seen some of our success in business. I'd seen his success in business. He knew how to create the the magical story that went with the timeline of the exact uh, points that we were trying to make. 
So it was a great partnership. We're, we're very proud of that book. Uh, it has not sold millions of copies, so we're still working on that first million copy. But the project was a worthwhile project, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then you hit on a very key point as well about the relationships and wanting to meet the people and then being the person that that person would want to meet. And I heard, I don't want to misquote, but it was someone, a guest on a podcast recently, and they talked about, it, it might have been, um, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on his name. Anyway, he talked about people say, oh, I want to be around so-and-so. I want to be around Jay-Z or Beyonce or whoever it is. Um, and that's their sole focus. And this person was saying um, that if you just have an actual true journey that you're on just to be a better you that one day you'll turn around and realize that you are around great people but just like you said if you're not doing that self-work you're not gonna be ready when opportunity knocks and i think that's a very very cool thing about this podcast is i've been around amazing people my whole career because i love my profession the first responder community but by doing this um to better our career and try and bring awareness to the issues that are killing not only our you know circle but all the other ones that are associated i found myself around these amazing people so i I kind of related to this person's comment because i've seen it myself now i get to talk to navy seals and you you and i are living in the same city but it was only because of frank that we met um but again if i just bumped into you in in the street and didn't have anything worthy of a conversation it would be a very different relationship yep absolutely yep so um you know the these these kind of podcasts right here really uh are part of helping people stretch the way they think about a lot of things and it is a form of mentorship as well and you know what you put in certainly you can't give what you don't have so consuming the right kind of things is a habit that highly uh, successful people, high performance people, you know, my, my mentor that I was talking about, Tony Jerry, is, you know, just a consumer of information. I've been a consumer of information. Today, I can, we consume things, you can consume things differently from multiple ways of consuming, whether it be YouTube, podcast, um, you know, still, I still like to read books occasionally. Uh, occasionally I like to listen to books. Occasionally I like to, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. I like to attend live events too. You know, sometimes live events are, you, you know, you get a, a lot of uh, impact. And I have attended a lot of events. And so, you know, taking uh, taking what we've learned, passing it on to other people. In our, in our case, we, we've helped a lot of individuals. We also, my wife and I, focus on helping the thinking of our children because they're getting bombarded uh, with what we would consider wrong ways of thinking constantly as well. I mean, it's hard not to (laughs) turn on, you know, uh, the television or, or watch a Hollywood movie without some sort of, you know, again, it may not be weird to someone else, but from our standpoint, what we stand for, it, it just, something's off with, with the principle that's being delivered here. And so we do have conversations with our children about, okay, here's how we feel about this. Here's, here's the right way to think about this from our perspective, and here's why. And, you know, I think it ties into politics a little bit as well. You know, I, I said this to Frank on the phone uh, a month or so ago. I said, Frank, you know, politics to me, 
uh, is almost like a, it's almost become a sporting event, meaning um, you've got two teams at the Super Bowl, for example. Uh, and one of the teams, they love, everybody loves their team, but then probably about half the crowd just hates the other team. They don't even know why they hate the other team. It's just the other team. It's, it has nothing to do with the people on the team. It has nothing to do with how those uh, you know, people think about life. They're just the other team. It, so it's come down to, in a lot of cases, a team sport. And I would like it to not be that way. I, don't, I, don't, I think it will always be that way. I think there is such a thing as team pride, and you want to be proud of it. I'm proud to be on the team that I'm on, okay? I'm politically and uh, every other area of my life. I, I'm absolutely proud. So I don't want to act like that's that's not the case. And I'm very proud that people want to support that team. But the next step of that is even on an existing team, there's different values sets. There's different people that you would want to get behind or not get behind if you really take the time to learn who they are and who they're not. And so the more we can... Uh, make sure our values are lining up with who we're supporting and who we're uh, working for, then that's great. And there are good people on both teams. 100% there's good people on both teams. But you gotta, you got to really get to the point where you, you know what you stand for and who you're going to line up with, I think, if you want to really feel good about what you're involved in. So, Yeah, well, that's a great segue then to your TED Talk. So this is the one thing, I, it was funny, we had breakfast a couple weeks ago and uh, I told you I'd start watching it and, and it's, it started off down one journey and I'm like, oh, this, this wasn't what I was expecting. And then you started talking about social business and I was like, ah, now I get it. And it was, it was awesome because, like I said, the, the, the core of this project is kindness and compassion and gratitude. And now, yeah. you know, it, it plays out whether it's, you know, helping on the mental health side, physical side. Um, you know, bringing people powerful stories, whatever it is, but that's the core of it. And common sense and even entrepreneurship within maybe an established business to, to use the social business philosophy is a win-win. I mean, it's absolute win-win, but I'd never really heard that term before. And obviously, I'm not, you know, deeply embedded in the business world. So for everyone out there, if you want to tell them exactly what it is and then what your observations have been with businesses that have embraced that philosophy. Well, I appreciate you asking that question. You know, social business is something that probably about five years ago um, I became aware of, four or five years ago. Uh, here we are, we had... In our careers, we've been part of helping move literally hundreds of millions of dollars worth of products and things over the course of that point, 15 years. Now it's been over 20. And we'd had some success with, with this. And we started looking for ways to, it started out as a, you know, a business uh, strategy, meaning we were trying to figure out ways to differentiate ourselves from other people with this particular company, with how do we how do we uh, differentiate ourselves from everybody else that's doing something similar? That's how the whole idea of of me coming to understand social business came about. And of course, uh, some people came into our lives that had a lot of experience in social business uh, at that point, and we began to study some other 
programs and other companies. You know, how in the world could somebody, uh, for example, there's thousands of brands of shoes out there. How do you start a shoe company and, and create a differentiation for yourself? Well, many people now have heard of a company called Tom Shoes. And this is a great example of this. And, and it'll help me explain what social business is. Because basically social business is a business who, whose net result, meaning that the business cannot succeed without you being able to help this world become a better place. It is a profitable business. These are not nonprofits, by the way. But what's baked into the fabric of this organization is that it can't exist without giving. It can't exist. And so what makes a social business different is that the giving doesn't take place um, like most companies. There are a lot of great companies that give money to good charities, but they give that money out of the profits. Nothing wrong with that, okay? That, but that's not a social business. That's just a generous company or a generous owner you know, let's say a company makes a billion dollars and they want to give a million to this charity. That is awesome that they do that. And we want to keep encouraging that. But that's not a social business. Um, a social business would be a company that would take their product or service and bake in the giving into the cost of goods sold so that every time something is sold in that company, it triggers an automatic giving mechanism so that the more volume the company does, the more giving has to take place. And to be considered a social business, you have to your books have to look a certain way. They have to uh, be accounted for a certain way. So you know quick, we were, we were starting to understand this. We're thinking, how in the world do you do you uh, you know get yourself set up this way? And it's really easier than what most people think it is. Tom Shoes, for example, they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a pair of shoes. Everybody needs shoes. But this is what we're going to do. Every time somebody buys a pair of our shoes, we're going to give a pair of shoes to someone in need. And we're not going to market the way that everybody else markets. We're going to market socially. But this is what the focus is going to be. It's going to be on how many pairs of shoes we're going to be able to give away rather than how many we can sell. Now, everybody knows when you buy a pair, they give a pair. Mm -hmm. And it took them, uh, and I don't have all the figures right now on the top of my head here live, but it took them years to get to where it was a significant number that had been given away, and then it started to catch on. People started to realize, you know what, these are okay shoes, but this is a phenomenal cause. And... There has been millions and tens of millions and millions and millions of shoes given. Millions and millions of people that, that in different countries that it was a big deal for them to get a pair of shoes have now been able to do that. And the support that's been rallied behind that has been incredible. So you could say that that one idea changed the world. So here's the cool part about this is that the owner of Tom Shoes, Blake, has made millions and millions of dollars. This wasn't a gift of charity, uh, but this was an absolute business structure that, that he made, <coughs> that <coughs> was an absolute business structure 
that he made sure was in alignment with his values. And so that's really what social business is. An owner of any business can take their business. I was uh, (coughs) talking with a doctor's office after I did the TED Talk. They called me and said, could you come in and help us turn our business into a social business? And I, I immediately thought, well, how do I turn a doctor's office into a social business? And we came up with this idea where they decided every transaction, now you're going to have to go with me here because I, I, I don't want this to sound, uh, I don't want this to come out the wrong way, so let me make sure I say this the right way. Every transaction that took place in their office was going to uh, fund a certain amount of nutritional, natural nutrition that they were going to be able to give away. Okay? Because this was more of a homeopathic type thing. So how did they do that? Well, they could have chosen to uh, make less money, but in their case, they were already... Their pricing was so significantly lower than other doctor's offices that were around. They were able to adjust their pricing model just a small fraction so that every transit, people still felt like they were getting a great deal at this doctor's office, but inside of their fees was baked in enough percentage, like a couple of percent, that they earmarked and they started keeping track of how much nutrition that they were giving people in need that couldn't afford it. And some of that was in the U.S., some of it was out of the country. It was wherever they wanted it to be. But now their doctor's office, when you walk into it, um, there's a idea that this, this doctor's office, we're doing more, everything we do here helps people outside of these walls as well. And they, they can track that. Each month, that number keeps going up. Each Once a month or so, they can send a newsletter to everybody that's subscribed, letting them know, hey, this month, this is what we were able to do because of uh, how we're set up here. So, And here's the other thing. The people that go to that doctor's office, they have choices to go anywhere they want to go in this county. Mm-hmm. But where do you think they want to go if they're going to get really good care, even if it's the same price, even if it was a little bit more? They're going to go now that they know that this one doctor's office really is contributing to making this world better. They get to feel a part of it. And that's the idea of social business. That's the idea of marketing. I, I was, my wife and I were very fortunate that we were able to work with the project that every serving of every, every item that we sold fed a child in need. And we were able to scale that business and without it affecting our income, without it affecting anything, we baked it into the fabric of the products that were sold. We were able to uh, help feed millions of children across the U.S. over a, a couple of, uh, across the world, really, U.S. included. Mainly in Mexico is where it started, and it has bridged to other countries as well. Um, and we weren't anticipating how emotional that that would be because we originally were thinking this is a just a cool business idea because hey we get to make a lot of money and help the world Mm -hmm. well what happened was we flew down and met went to some of the orphanages uh, and met some of the children 
that our project was helping to have a better life. And we were able to connect that emotionally into that particular project. And for a short period of time, just a few years, we were very, very uh, moved by being able to connect business that helped change the world. That's called social business. So if you're listening, you own a business, um, you can go watch my TED Talk and learn a little bit more. But there's other, I mean, there's great companies out there. Just type in the word social business into Google. You're going you're gonna to see more of this popping up throughout uh, the world because it is, it's a great way to conduct business. But it also is a legacy way to conduct business. It's a purposeful way to conduct business. And so that's a little bit of what I know about social business. Yeah. Well, and I think it's it's incredible. And uh, just going back to what you said about feeding, you know, people in need, is social business how Tony Robbins talks about feeding millions? Has he got that baked into his or does he do more contributions? He, he bakes it in. I don't know. I, I'd have to study his model, so I don't want to speak out of place here. Because he has done a tremendous, uh, tremendous thing with with what you know how he's given. Don't know that it's qualified as a social business, but it certainly is a form of giving. But it could be he he may have switched it or moved it. We'll just have to check that out. Yeah, yeah. So what I what I love about this is I see two polar opposites. You have Monsanto, for example, going back to pesticides and all that monopoly to the point where they're suing farmers because they find their crop, you know, just horrendous, nasty, underhound monopoly. I want to have all the food and, you know, own complete control. Then you have the complete polar opposite, the the bona fide non-profit charity. And, you know, the, the, so many of my friends that have these non-profits, the big struggle is finance. One of my friends, Ryan Parrott, who has uh, Sons of the Flag, which is an amazing... Um, organization that helps the burn injured and there's a mental health element to it as well but he's constantly figuring out ways of you know raising funds um, because for them they're literally trying to pay these amazing surgeons to fix these men and women that were that were hurt and so this seems to be that middle ground like of course you know to me this is what capitalism should be it's not about crushing the the opposition it's not about having you know, Radio Shack and Best Buy and all these like right next to each other and then watching whichever one closes down and everyone else high fives. It should be, everyone should be able to kind of contribute in some way and, and work along side by side. But what a beautiful thing as you create a profit and build your business and employ local people that you're actually simultaneously starting to address some of the issues that society sees. And if all these businesses started having that model, one took on homelessness and one took on, you know, like you said, feeding the the needy or, you know, whatever it is, whatever people are, yeah, are, are close to or passionate about, it's, uh, to me, I was blown away by this model. I've never heard of it, but I love this. Well, and philosophy. that's really one of one of the reasons why it's taken off so well is because it's getting so hard to raise money for nonprofits. So, what what we can do is we can help a nonprofit somebody that's really passionate about a nonprofit, you know, maybe link up with a product that I would recommend it being related to whatever that nonprofit would be. And we begin to focus on how do we drive the sales of that product because that product is what's going to fuel this nonprofit. 
that that would be the, the, the that's where you'd switch from nonprofit to social business, and it would feel like for a moment, okay, now we're going to go, we're going to be focused all of our energy on business. Well, if it's set up properly, that's not a bad thing to do if your goal is to fund a nonprofit. And we have found that in social business, that things work best when it's kept simple. The one for one model tends to resonate uh, with consumers. They don't want to have to think about where the money's going. They want to know exactly. So that's why Tom's shoes. Buy a pair of shoes, we give a pair. Buy one, give one. The buy one, give one model tends to work the best. Now, it, it isn't always possible with every product that's being sold. But I want to encourage you, if you're thinking down this line as a listener today, you know, and you want to go down this path, um, keep it simple. Simple grows faster. Uh, align it, you know, homelessness with a, uh, we sell, you know, we're, we sell, we're going to be the best flashlight company in the world. Okay. And I'm just making up stuff as we're talking here, or, you know, we're, we sell camping gear. We sell tents. Every tent we sell, we, we help get a homeless person off the streets. So here's what we do. We got to go find out what does it take to get a homeless person off the streets that, that legitimately wants to be helped. It's probably less money than everybody thinks. But whatever that money is, then we come back and we, we bake it in to our, our product and we get focused on selling products and then we partner with an organization that maybe is a nonprofit that we can fund that specifically helps that. And now we have a business model that's a one-for-one model of some type or one a simple model that really can go change the world. You go out and create a successful business you cannot succeed in that business without having a tremendous impact on society. So I know we've kind of gone off on social business here, but it, it, it's a fun thing to talk about because business is fun. Helping people's fun. If you like to do those two things, social business is probably for you. And I want to encourage everybody. You can really go online and purchase things you know, that from social businesses. You could say, okay, um, a lot of the things in my house – I want to I want to convert to my purchasing power helping other people. A company I'm thinking of a company called Soapbox. That's one. You go to Soapbox and and buy your you know soap. It's a good price. It's really good. It's actually high quality. But they in turn they're going to uh, help countries that have an issue with cleanliness. And there's a big trade off. There's uh, I mean, every almost every product you can think of now has some sort of social business that you can find attached to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the efficiency point seems to be, you know, very powerful. So the the ugly side of some of these charities we've seen is, you know, seventy percent goes under quote unquote administrative costs, and you've got these these you know upper echelon of these charities sending themselves on vacations at five star hotels, and whereas this it seems to just be direct like obviously again you can be affiliated with a nonprofit, um, or even better a nonprofit finds a way of creating a product and then immediately doing it themselves but now the how you already have the infrastructure to get shoes made you're a shoe making factory you know what i mean so it just seems like such an efficient model as well to go directly to the source and cut out all that red tape and, and wasted money between a and b Brilliant. All right. Well, then let's transition back to politics. So you kind of walked us up really through the the business side. 
your dad was in politics in the 80s. What made you finally pull the trigger and decide to go for member of Congress? Well, I, uh, you know, I appreciate you asking. You know, I'm, I'm uh, at a different point in life today. I'm 45 years old. I, again, I have four, four children. And I think about uh, the America today, um, which is a great country, very proud of it. But it, there's a lot of things about it that are not the same for me or for my children as they were for me when I was their age. So when I think about things through my kids' eyes, you know, I start to think about, okay, what, what could I contribute to do to help improve? And um, so I'm just going to hit you with, with a number of reasons why I'm op- opening up to this at the moment. And, you know, one of those reasons would be I believe that, that the values as a father, as a, as a um, just a man of who I am, my values are, are would be considered under attack. What do I mean by that? Meaning not everybody thinks the same and not everybody should think the same. But there's voices that are that are in political settings right now that are pushing for things that I'm sitting here thinking, this is not the path I want my children and maybe one day my grandchildren uh to necessarily get caught up in and and the things that our kids today are having to think about uh, constantly and decisions that kids are having to make today about life and you know how they should live it there's many things that are being imposed on them by our media and our society and some of that starts from the top down with the way uh, politics plays a role into that so when I say values we could we could be on here all day talking about values, but, but I would think most people listening to me are saying, you know, there's, there's probably a few things most listeners are disgusted with that they're constantly hearing over and over and over and over again. They know that it wasn't even a a topic five or 10 years ago, but now it's being crammed down their throats. They have to hear it. And so that's one element. Um, But let's get to some of the political elements. I believe I've, uh, the experience that I bring to the table, I'm not uh, I'm not bringing political experience to the table, but over the last several decades, I have been able to build businesses, multiple businesses, and consult with entrepreneurs all over the country. And by most standards, the businesses that I, that we build have been been highly successful, and they've involved lots of people. They've involved people of all different walks of life, uh, all different uh, personality types. Some are real headstrong. Some, some we agree with, some I don't agree with. But we've been able to find com, common ground, find unity, and have successful businesses uh, despite all that. Well, some of that kind of common sense business approach of how to get things done, um, whether, whether we agree with him or not, some of that is the reason why our current president is, is elected because people bought into the idea that he could get some things done uh, and he is getting things done. Uh, not everybody agrees with everything he's getting done, but but he's getting good things done, and, and he's done some good things for our country. There's no doubt about that, uh, in my mind, anyway. Um, so, but he's not going to be president forever. We've got a, you know, you made a statement early on that hey, you're not, we're not so sure. You're not so sure. The last couple of choices we've had are the absolute best we've had. I don't know that anybody's going to necessarily argue with that statement but there there's more choices coming and 
How are we going to set the path for that? Um, well, and I believe that people that, that know how to work with people and get things done and, and that aren't necessarily trying to, uh, go to go to Washington, D.C. for a career. And here's another topic. Um, we've got too many career politicians that have been in the seat 30 and 40 years. They owe so many favors to so many people, they can't really get anything done because they're too busy doing favors. Our country's $22 trillion in debt. It's getting worse and with all of that debt, some of the things we talked about early on, uh, security, for example, um, we're just trying to secure the country. I don't know that it is secure, yet we're still $22 trillion in debt. So you take the, we, I've just listed four or five things. Um, I'm in a position today where I'm able to, uh, when I announced my candidacy just four weeks ago, I am out full time um, from day one meeting people, making it happen, um, pulling together. I've been very, very fortunate. I know a lot of uh, business owners, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of influencers in this area that are supporting me right now. We plan on going um, to D.C. We got, we're not taking anything for granted. we got a lot of work, and there's several other people running for this, and some of them are good people. But we, we believe that what we bring to the table is going to serve this area the best out of the choices we have. And we want to go put some of that time in. Let me give you one last piece here. We believe that we can get results, as we've said. I've given you a, a few re things that, without this being a whole political podcast, giving you a few specifics of what we, what we, uh, the, why we would go. Um, so, you know, we believe, we believe we're going to be the ones that make it to, to D.C., you know, there's several good people that are racing uh, right now uh, for this seat. But, you know, our experience is going to lend itself to a certain type of getting things done that we need to do. Now, I don't view this as a, a career change for myself. Uh, I'm still still a business owner. I still own businesses. But I, I've set those businesses up where they're, they're able to operate without me at the moment. And... We're able to put all of our time to go focus and do this from day one, from the day we announced four weeks ago. We are out earning votes and, and meeting with influencers that we know, and we know a lot, that are throwing their support this way because they want to see somebody of our value set uh, go up there uh, and get things done. But this is not a career necessarily to me. I am for term limits, um, meaning, you know, the. 20 years from today, sitting in the same seat, doing the same thing is not the ideal scenario. Although there are good people that, that could do that, there's probably more cons than there is pros for people staying in there forever. And so uh, we're absolutely excited about this. The, the time frame for us, again, I'm 46 years old. We've got several decades of experience, but we want to go make a difference, and we want to look back at this. We, we like being involved in things that, that can help a lot of people, and this is one of those areas in life that we can go rally, create energy to rally towards the right kind of thinking. And I'll go back to something we said early on in the podcast. When you, when you are around, uh, there's a certain type of thinking that's currently in D.C. There's a certain type of thinking that's going down a certain path, and um, we can we can't, as I said, 
uncorrupt corrupt, we can only replace. So bringing in new, fresh, uh, value-driven individuals to that uh, setting is going to be crucial in the next years to come. Um, our current president is not going to be president forever, so we've got to do things that are going to outlast him and his legacy as well. So that's a little bit uh, of a nutshell of, of why we're doing it. Um, we're definitely excited about it. We believe it's what we're supposed to be doing right now with what we've learned in life, and we, we plan on going making a difference. Brilliant. And so just to, so people can can learn more, where can they find your candidacy website online? Well, if they go to ryanchamberlain.com, and you got to spell Chamberlain right way, a lot of times people, uh, the last three or four letters, uh, they spell it L-A-I-N, but that is not correct. It's just L-I-N. So it's R-Y-A-N-C-H-A-M-B-E-R-L-I-N. I'm sure it'll be listed on the podcast. But go to ryanchamberlain.com. Uh, that'll that'll direct you. You know, you connect with us on Facebook. We we've uh, got a following there. We do a little bit on Twitter, a little bit on Instagram, uh, but we're gearing up the the race as we speak. Certainly, it is considered a national race. We've all been schooled in the last couple of years here in the U.S. that uh, Congress people in Alaska can help make decisions that affect people in Florida mm-hmm. because they're making decisions that affect all 50 states. So in this case, if you feel like you, you line up with me, uh, if you're from uh, New Jersey, for example, your money will help my can- my campaign just like local money will. <laughs> so you're welcome to donate and, and, and do that. And we encourage uh, that, whether it's me or someone else. If you know candidates across the country uh, and you personally know them and you have access and you know their values and you're in alignment with them, we, we know that most people don't typically support candidates financially. A lot of people do, but, but a lot of people don't. But if you have an opportunity and you know someone, you know, even if you send them $25 or $50 or, or, or a smaller amount or, or a big amount, it goes a long way to help them rally their support, what they need to do, because it, it does, uh, you know, you, you got to get out there and spread the word, and that, that requires some things, uh, requires money. But RyanChamber.com is where they would go. And uh, you can check me out, see what I'm about. Send me some mess. You can send me a message, ask questions. You can go on Facebook and certainly the way Facebook works, you can comment on a post or ask a question and I'll get back to you. Brilliant. Yeah, so just as a tangent with that, I think there's a lot of conversation about how much money is involved in you know, presidential races and, and all the way down. Um, what is your philosophy on removing that barrier to entry so that more people are able to throw their, their name? Yeah, you know, I mean, anyone can throw their, their hat in the ring. Yeah. But how successful they will be well, might depend on I appreciate that question. That, and, and there's uh, a couple of angles to that. I've had to think that through a little bit because the, these, um, well, first of all, I don't like, I do not like the fact that it costs a billion dollars or more for a candidate to run for the White House. Uh, that that just seems crazy to me that we would even be in that place. So that's one angle. But let's trickle it down to even local races, some of which, uh, you know, to run for, you know, whether it's a governor or a state state house race or a Senate race. Typically, the state local races, some of those can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars because of marketing costs, media costs, and things of that nature. So... Here's two ways of doing it. Here's two ways of thinking about it. One, 
you know, what if there were caps and there was a certain limit, this is all you could spend. I've had to think through that argument a little bit. And I understand there could be some pros and cons to that. It, but I want, I also have to think about the other side of it. Um, the, the candidate that can rally the most support is typically the one that we're going to want. Okay, the one that can rally the support, the one that has the following. I'm not talking about the candidate that can put in their own money, the most money that they have. So we don't want to put limits on how much support somebody can rally. Because if they can rally millions of people to donate $10, then that is a very solid candidate. And you know we wouldn't have uh, wanted to say no to them. So... I'm I'm a little torn as to whether or not there should be uh, personal uh, caps or not. I know some people I know close to me are gonna gonna say absolutely they should not be, and some are gonna say absolutely there should be. And, and if I'm thinking most people listening to this, I know if I'm just gonna be honest with you on this this podcast, it bothers me that that there that an individual is able to put a billion of their own money or 500 million of their own money because that that's going to eliminate a lot of good people from ever even wanting to play the game. That part bothers me. Um, The flip side of it is, uh, you know, we definitely don't want to put caps on what people can raise for, for that uh, because we want people to be able to prove themselves as a viable candidate. And, you know, the more people you get to donate, even a dollar, the more viable your candidacy is. So that's kind of one of those arguments. We don't have time to uncover it, but that's a little bit of how I feel on it. Okay. No, that was a great perspective. And I think when we have breakfast as well, you had made a very good point is what we don't think about is then that money, a lot of it goes to advertising. So the people that are getting rich are the TV stations and Facebook and Instagram. And I'd never even thought about that. So they must be loving that system. <laughs> They're, I mean, and I'm going to throw out a guess, a guesstimate here. If, if a billion dollars is being spent in in a campaign, I would be shocked if seven hundred million of it wasn't going to advertising in one form or another. Maybe more. Seventy uh, percent is what I'm I'm, I'm thinking through. And, I, and again, I I'm not uh, I haven't ran a bunch of campaigns, haven't participated in a bunch, but just in analyzing what I know I'm going to have to do in mind, the percentage of what we raise, you know. The, the TV stations, the, the, the radio, the, the Facebook. Facebook complains about politics. They don't like to, they don't like politics, but they have no problem taking the money. They have no problem making billions billions this year off of whatever you know Republican, Democrat, independent, they'll take it from anybody. You got to jump through hoops, but everybody does. So that's my experience anyway. I'm, I may be speaking out of place and I hope uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't get mad at what I said, <laughs> but he should. It is what it is. Though. It's the system. It's mm-hmm. what's going on right now. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. So we always focus on the candidate, but I never really switched my perspective to who's receiving a lot of that money. And yeah, these these stations, and I think most people now see it in even you know the regular dude, regular man or woman in the algorithms it's like why now when i post like you said the charity i'm trying to support sons of the flag i put this little thing about them i have five thousand followers on this page and six people liked this post 
you know because and that's the thing it's like almost holding even the average person for ransom like well if you pay twenty dollars to boost your post then maybe we'll allow it to be seen by the other four thousand nine hundred and you know whatever friends that you have so yeah it's it's uh it's eye-opening when you realize that there are large corporations wringing their hands waiting for these political dollars to come back to them yeah okay well i want to transition to some closing questions we're going to let you go your books are now you know the mentor and the rich you formula um so firstly where can people find those uh they're all on amazon there's also a fourth one called becoming a strategic networker that's my newest one came out last year it's it's a really a team building book um and i and i co-authored that with tony jerry the guy that that i told you about early on original mentor. mentor yeah and so but these books are all available on Amazon right now. Um, I have, uh, when when I decided to run for U.S. Congress, you know, you used to be able to go to RyanChamble.com and buy my books. Right now, uh, you go to Amazon to do it because I'm I'm out of the I'm not a bookseller at the moment. I'm not out coaching and and doing that. I'm I'm full time focused on what I'm doing. But yeah, Amazon is the best place to get them for right now. And, you know, connect with me on Facebook and you'll see things coming out periodically uh, to my the way that I market. But that's the best place. Brilliant. Okay, so the other question I'd love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend that someone else has written that can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different? You know, since we're talking business, since we're talking uh, values, since we're talking politics, and and I, I hadn't even didn't know this question was coming, hadn't thought this question. The book that flashed into my mind when you said that is a book, Good to Great, by Jim Collins. It is, it's one of my favorite books for a lot of reasons, um, but the, the, way, the way the values are, are baked into the philosophy of how to build a company uh, resonates with me, um, and I really enjoyed that book. It, it probably was one of my favorite books in the last 20 years that I've read. Now, I've read uh, a lot of different books, but you asked me for one, so that's that's one that if you haven't read that recently, and I'm guessing our listeners, um, it's amazing how many people haven't read it. A lot of people have heard of it, but they haven't really read it. That's a good business book that kind of covers a lot of the things we're talking about here. Brilliant. Yeah, I've heard of it on Tim Ferriss. I'm, I'm, several of his guests have mentioned that, but yeah, that's something I need to get myself. Um, because that's the the thing is I never thought I would be an entrepreneur myself, and obviously it's it's podcasting the the financial oh, side yeah. is never the focus. But I mean, technically, you know, it took me away from the fire service as far as sitting in a vehicle. So, um, okay. So the other question, the same thing, but a movie. Is there a movie that you love? You know, from a storyline, it's hard for me not to think of uh, the movie Rocky. As being what you know, because I saw that for the first time when I was a kid, and I know a lot of people don't like that would be considered a violent movie to some people, but the uh, the the dream, the struggle, the prize that's that's the tagline we have in the book, The Mentor, and that's really uh, the story of Rocky is just a great a great thing for people to ponder on and think about, and uh, that's the movie that came to my mind when you said that. Brilliant. You know, it's funny. I think if I collated all the answers for that particular question, I think Rocky would be number one and then either level or just below it would be the Band of Brothers series. Those are the two that come up over and over again. Wow. So 
people definitely relate to it. Um, so same question in that theme. Is there documentaries? So you mentioned Food Inc. and uh, Forks Over Knives. Any other ones that you liked? Documentaries. Um, you know, I do like historical documentaries. Um, you know, I liked... Uh, uh, there was a documentary a few years back on John Adams that was incredible. It was an HBO documentary. So from a documentary standpoint, that's one that I'm about to start the uh, new one on George Washington. It's just come out. And so uh, those kind of documentaries that, that add historical importance but, but allow you to um, realize that these, these people that formed this country were, were human beings. I mean, they were, they were people. They struggled just like we did. They had family issues just like we did. They had – some of them lost children. Some of them, their their spouses got killed in in war. Some of them uh, certainly were first responders. Some of them were, you know, they were human. We got to humanize these people. And then, but what they what they were passionate about, what they fought for, was something bigger than themselves. And when I when I get my mind into that, sometimes these documentaries help you do that. It's it's just a fun place to be uh, because. Who knows? Someday uh, people write about 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is, we really have a lot going on. And when they were, when they were in the middle of what we're, we're writing documentaries on now, they were just in the middle of it. It's just what they were doing with their life at their point. I don't know that they knew in 2020, we would be making documentaries or they couldn't even imagine that that, that it was that important. They just felt like it's what they were supposed to be doing at that time in their life. So uh, I get excited about uh, great documentaries like that. So Yeah. Yeah, and I think we look um, romantically at that period, but I think there's a lot to be gleaned. And one of the big things that I quote all the time is we the people. Like I think that 2020 is a hope, a, a year where there's a reawakening where we realize that we are the country. Like, and it's not these polar opposite, awful, you know, right wing Nazi or left wing Antifa and all the god awful shit that we're exposed to on television at the moment. But it's the middle chunk that is America and this beautiful rolling landscapes and, you know, the amazing charity that you see being these acts of kindness that this is the country. But whether it's the business side, whether it's the political side, I think somehow it's been flipped around where we think that the person sitting in that DC giant house is the puppet master of our country. It's like, no, we, we are the people. It says in the blooming constitution, we, the people, this is us. And we ask, you know, people to represent us in, in areas of politics. But when we forget that we are America, there's, there's no MAGA. We're not making it great. It is great. We just got to remember, we got to, you know, look in the mirror be proud of who we are and walk out the front door and do something good in your own community. You recommended a gentleman, Spider-Man, who will be coming on the show. Um, and I want to thank you for connecting me. Is there anyone else that you think would be a good guest? Um, just talk to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world. Um, that that I'm connected with, yeah. I mean, anyone at all doesn't have to be someone you know, but 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 uh, I always like this to kind of start that, you know, rabbit hole to to finding someone that you admire that you think would be a good person to talk to our audience. You know, when I think of first responders, 
I, I naturally think of leadership. Okay. I think of, you know, there's a lot of, you know, whether all the first responders think of themselves as leaders, um, there's a certain amount of leadership that, that I believe is baked into someone that's willing to put themselves first. Okay. And so I had an opportunity to work with a guy named John Maxwell and he's, he's an older gentleman now, but he, he would be kind of the, the, uh, real, uh, leader, leadership expert right now in the U S and I think that having him on a show like this, uh, having him on a podcast like this, uh, just to talk about, you know, three or four or five of the most important things that that a first responder could do to 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 take their leadership up to another level would be a phenomenal thing to do. So he he would kind of be the, that that uh, that father figure from a leader standpoint that I would think would be great on here. Now I'm saying that in addition to some of the people that you, I know you've already had, like Frank Mascuso, who who speaks on leadership. You've already had some of these guys. So people, that would be one that if, if I was, uh, if I was able to get him on here, he would, it'd be a cool show to have him on. Brilliant. What's his background? Is he business specific or? His background uh, is uh, ministry. He, he was a minister in a few different states for, for many years and then retired from that. And over the last 20 years, uh, he's sold more more books on leadership than any leadership author ever in the history. And so books like Developing the Leader Within You, or Developing the Leaders Around You, uh, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, um, you know, Laws of Teamwork, laws of, he, he's, he really speaks to uh, principle-based leadership in a, in a way that is is off the chart. So that's what I, uh, without me even knowing more of, uh, you know, specific things that you would be looking for, that's what I would recommend. Brilliant. Well, thank you. All right, next question before we, we finally close out and find out where everyone can find you online. What do you do to decompress when you're not an entrepreneur and running for Congress? What do I do to decompress? Um, well, we tra- my wife and I and family, we travel. We, we like to go uh, to Colorado. And so we usually will rent a cabin. We will hang out in Colorado. We do it all times of the year. My boys do like to snowboard. So that's kind of, uh, that, those will be weeks, uh, usually a few weeks a year where the phone goes off. We, we chill out. But, you know, from what do I like to do? We like to just uh, hang with the family, uh, chill out, you know, whether it's cooking out or, or playing board games. We played some board games, played some card games, um, watch a movie. Um, and, you know, I, I think that those would be my top choices. Traveling, traveling, seeing new sites is probably the, the, what we do that relaxes me the most because usually when I, when I can get out of town for a few days, um, I don't feel the pull, uh, that you, you feel when you're home. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd agree hundred percent. I mean, family time and traveling combined. Like I take my little one that just walked through the door then, um, you know, all over the place with me and yeah, it's, it's so healing. And then, like you said, there's nothing better than being in a place where you can't use your phone, you know, and then you're forced to, to be present. 
Brilliant. All right. So then for everyone listening, let's just reiterate where they can find you online, um, the website and the social media. Yeah, just go to go to RyanChamberlain.com. That's R-Y-A-N-C-H-A-M-B-E-R-L-I-N.com. When you go there, you'll be able to connect with me on Facebook, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. Um, you can also uh, uh, put your email in if you want to connect. We, we, do a, we do a bunch of different things. My books are on Amazon right now, uh, and there's four of them out there. Uh, just Google Ryan Chamberlain there as well. There's some books that'll pop up if that's what you're interested in as well. But I'd love for you to connect with us, um, follow us, uh, support us. There's lots of ways to support. Just you know, sharing things or saying saying nice things. Don't say anything mean, but say <laughs> say some nice things. Uh, that that all helps. It really does. So thank you uh, again for having me on. Thank you.